we're going to finish up the book of Ruth this evening. Um, we're going to be in chapter 4. We've talked about chapter 1, which was all about weeping. Chapter 2 was all about working. Chapter 3 was all about waiting, that, that horrible word that we don't like as human beings, uh, wait. And in chapter 4, we finally get to the wedding. We get to the, to the good news at the end of the whole story. But um, the fourth chapter of Ruth is, is not only the last chapter of the book, it's also the climax of the entire book. And, and, and here, the promises of God, or, or at least I would say the next, the next stage in his purposes, and the, the purposes of God, are, the next stage of his purposes become, begin to become clear to us. And from, from one point of view, Naomi's story during that day, is because you know the story of Ruth starts off with the story of Naomi, and her story is like anybody else's story back in the days of the judges when, when there was no king in Israel. Elimelech made his, her husband made his decisions on the basis of what he thought would be best for himself and his family. In other words, he did exactly what the end of Judges says that, that they did was he did what was right in his own eyes. And in, in the process of doing that, it brought his wife to the brink of ruin. Eventually, uh, uh, but now of course he could never, he could never have foreseen that, but she got to the point where her only way out, out was through her foreign daughter-in-law, uh, whose loyalty to her, because of her loyalty to the Lord, paved the way for the kinsman redeemer to rescue them both. And, and at one level, this might seem to be, this whole story might seem to be a rather ordinary, somewhat limited story of a family crisis, yet the thing about it is, is that with this ordinary story, it, it, it merits a whole book, an entire book in the Bible, and that tells us something. It, it indicates that, that the revelation that it contains is clearly strategic to our understanding of the mind and the purpose of God, uh, and, and I believe it really is pointing to the necessity and the provision of redemption at the very heart of God's plan. <clears throat> at, at the personal level, the, the message of the book of Ruth is is about God's faithful love the, leading to restoration and blessing, both physical and spiritual blessing. And, and the Ruth story opens with death and with emptiness, and then it closes with life and with fullness. And the last chapter of the book brings the story full circle from a bitter, bitter situation in the beginning to a blessed one at the end. Now, in the previous chapter, we just, last week we talked about how Ruth came to Boaz in the night and and then uh, she asked him, really kind of very boldly asked him, will you be my kinsman redeemer? Will you marry me? In essence, was what she was saying. And we learned that Boaz, in response to that, he was very eager to serve as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. But we discovered there was a problem. Do you remember at the end of the chapter, he said, he said, I would love to do this, but there is a, there is a relative that's closer. There's a kinsman redeemer that is, is uh, higher in priority. He's, he's a closer relative. And so that was the problem. The, the reality was Boaz did not have the right to do what he wanted to do and what Ruth was asking him to do uh, because there was this nearer relative who owned that right. <coughs> Excuse me. And so while his heart is, is Ruth's and, and he has this deep desire to marry her, there, there's, there's something more important to him than even that. And that was that his heart 
belonged to the Lord before it belonged to her. Which, by the way, is a great foundation for building a marriage. When, a, when, when you find someone who you, you're going to marry, you want that person to love the Lord more than they love you. You really want that. That's necessary. And, and Boaz is not going to do anything to compromise his walk with God, even, even though he loves Ruth desperately and he desperately wants to marry her. The reality was he was willing to let her marry another man rather than compromise his integrity and compromise his walk with God. He just was concerned about that and concerned that Ruth was taken care of. And that's why he said, speaking to Ruth, he said, he said uh, uh, there is a nearer kinsman redeemer. If he wants to redeem you, so be it. You'll be taken care of. I don't have to worry about you then. But he's not going to jump the gun and try to go around, uh, you know, to do an end around things. But so the, the question we're faced at the end of chapter three is, will God solve the problem of a nearer redeemer, the, the relative on whom the responsibility to help these women falls before it falls to Boaz? Will God step in? This, this is the story line in the final chapter of Ruth. And it's if and when God does this, the, the message of the book of Ruth will draw to a conclusion, or, or at least so we think, so we think. So I want to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. We'll read the first six verses first. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz uh, said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi has come back from Moab, uh, excuse me, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. By the way, it's not really a physical brother, uh, a blood brother, but he's just brother in the sense of family. They're probably some sort of distant cousin. Uh, verse four. I thought I should bring it, bring the matter before you. Excuse me. Bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, "On the day you buy the land from Naomi and, and from Ruth the Moabitess." You acquire the dead man's vid widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. All right, so we're going to stop there. So Naomi, at the end of chapter three, had said to Ruth, she said, you just watch. This man will not rest today until he resolves this matter, and she was absolutely correct in her assessment of Boaz, Boaz's determination to settle matter, settle matter as quickly as possible. He went to the city gate, and in many ways, uh, the gate of the city was the very center of the city life back then. Uh, the, the, that's where town folk would, would gather for conversation. It's, it's where they would gather for the administration of justice. The elders would, of the city uh, would be gathered there, and, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but the, at, the, it was at, at the gate of the city that the poor would wait for aid, um, and, it, and it, that location also served as a place for transacting business. Um, you see, uh, they, the, the way they did business, it was often just by word of mouth or a handshake, so to speak, in our modern terminology, and so they would do it at the city gate because that provided legal witnesses. 
so that way they could uh, they could talk they they'd have a witness for what was happening on and and it also serves as a kind of a forum and a, a public meeting place so there's always people there and and Boaz apparently went directly to the city gate after he got up that next morning after Ruth had come to the threshing floor and he went directly to the city gate to wait for the nearer kinsman without returning home so he said I'm going to go there and, and I'm going to look for this guy. Hopefully he'll show up. And, and, and so he, he is absolutely determined to settle this matter. He, he wants to marry Ruth. He wants to get this settled. So he rises early in the morning and he, and he goes out to the city gate and he waits for the town fathers who the town fathers uh, act as counselors. They act as judges. And, and you can imagine I, I'm, I'm just picturing, you know, I'm just thinking if I were in his place, I'm, he's, he's probably more than a little bit nervous because this is a big moment for him. He's really, really wanting this to happen, but he knows that he's not next in line. He has no legal right, no authority to make anything happen. So after arriving at the gate, he sat down and started to wait for the man who had prior rights and duties toward Naomi and Ruth to pass that way. And in a town of the size of Bethlehem, which was not a massive town, he, the best place to encounter friends was to just go to the city gate and wait there, sort of like because, because sooner or later, everybody passed that way. It's sort of like today, it'd be the modern day equivalent. If you want to find anybody in town, just go and wait at Walmart because they're going to show up at Walmart eventually. You see everybody at Walmart eventually. So it's the same kind of thing. But, but here's what's interesting is that Boaz didn't have to wait very long. Just as, just as he is sitting there at the gate, uh, some translations say, behold. Um, and and the, the NIV doesn't bring this idea out very much, but it's sort of like the author's way of sort of raising his eyebrows at us as if to say, well, there goes God's provisional activity again, his providential activity again. Here he's, God's doing something again, again because the, the idea behind the phrase is, is as the, the closer relative whom Boaz has just mentioned uh, to Ruth just happens to appear when he gets there. It just so happens. What a coincidence. That's the, and the, the author of the book is trying to get that, that idea across that, that God's hand is in this because those kind of things don't just accidentally happen. So anyway, Boaz saw the man that he was seeking and he, and he called to him. And NIV says that he, uh, the salutation that he used was, my friend, come and sit here. But that really misses the meaning of the Hebrew phrase used here because it's really an idiom. That, that's best translated, uh, instead of friend, it's Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> so, that kind of funny? So he says, hey, Mr. So-and-so, how don't you come over here and sit down? And uh, it, it, was a, it was a phrase that was used by, by the, when a writer didn't deem it essential to give a person's name. Now, it doesn't mean that Boaz didn't know his name. Certainly he knew his name. He knew he was a relative. He knew he was uh, closer in, in line. So he, he certainly knew his name. But, but the anonymity of this uh, other man, it, it, it just sort of adds to the atmospheric touch, uh, an atmospheric touch to the drama and serves to underline that this man will have no role in the advance of God's kingdom. He, he refuses to fulfill his covenant obligations. Now, we don't know that at this, this early stage, but we know from the story, we know that's what takes place. And it's, it's as though the narrator is saying, do you see this man? who refuses responsibility, he, he will have no further significance. You don't even need to know his name. That's how unimportant he is. 
he will remain unnamed and have no place in the record of God's purposes. Uh, and so anyway, this man comes over and sits down. Presumably, he's completely oblivious to what is about to take place. Um, and Boaz turns to the city fathers of whom he has gathered a quorum. Where there were 10 of them, which interestingly enough, later on, uh, 10 was the required number of Jewish males to establish a synagogue in any city. So uh, it's interesting that it was still, that it was 10. But uh, so he gathers these elders and the elders are the ones who exercised important roles in, the, in, the, in, the, in all the periods of Israel's history, you know, both judicial and political. And, and in matters of dispute, these men would, would, would sit and listen to the opposing parties as they presented their cases. They would listen to the witnesses. They would weigh the evidence. They'd make their decision. So they, they served as judges, but, but they also served as witnesses in legal transaction. And Boaz realizes that what's about to take place is not just a casual conversation, but this is a legal transaction. And he wants the witness of the elders. He wants this to be on the up and up. He wants this to be done the right way. And, and, and none of them have any idea what's about to go down. So Boaz, he begins to, to set forth his case to them. And he explained that Naomi, who had returned from Moab, and they all knew her story. She was well known in the city of Bethlehem after her experiences and coming back and, and saying, you know, she came back and she said, I went away full, but now I'm bitter and this sort of thing. I went away full, but now I'm empty. And, and so he explained that Naomi was selling a piece of land that belonged to their kinsman, Elimelech, her husband. Now, that's a very, this is a very interesting thing that's taking place here because the reader is not told why she was selling it. Now, of course, we kind of can figure that out because um, she's, she's, um, it, the land needs to be sold because they're in a, a destitute situation. They're not going to have the money, the means to survive and so now that the harvest is over, they're going to have to sell it. Um, <clears throat> but, but what's interesting is we're not told what her legal claim to it was. Because how could she sell land that according to the law passed from a man to his son or to a kinsman? Now remember, Elimelech died before the two sons did. So that means that when he died, his property would have passed down to his sons, and it would have been split according to the, to the percentages of the law. And, and, and property could pass from a father to a daughter, <clears throat> excuse me, if there was no son, but the law did not specifically give any provision for passing an inheritance from a husband to a wife. It's very, very different than what our law was like. And so um, it may have been just something that they just, that they just said, this is the normal thing that we do, even though it's not lined out in the law, because this widow has to have some way of making some money, you know, to be able to survive. Um, but we know it was extremely important in, in Israeli culture that the land remained within the family. So what he is doing here, Boaz is saying, the land is going to be sold. We need to do something to keep it in the family. Because they're, remember, they're relatives of Elimelech. So he urged the kinsmen to, to make his intentions known before the people and before the elders who were witnessing the exchange. So, and he asked him, will you redeem the property as the nearest kinsman? He said, if you don't, I'll do it because I'm next in line right after you. And to our surprise, and 
I mean, when you're reading the story, what I mean, it's a surprise to us because as you're reading the story, you're, you're seeing this romance develop, this love story between Ruth and Boaz, and you, you, know, you get to the part of the story. Just imagine if you had never heard the story before. You get to this part in the third chapter where, where he says, yes, I'll redeem you. And then you get to chapter four, and the one guy who could stand in the way says, oh yeah, I'll redeem the land. By the way, it's very interesting that no discussion has been made of the land that belonged to Elimelech up until this point. It has not been an issue at all. And, and so that's, that's an interesting point because uh, to, to approach the subject, Boaz is, is, is using the land as a means to get his foot in the door. Uh, <clears throat> and so let, let's read what happened. Uh, and this man, he said, I'll redeem it. And it's because we're going to see in a moment that he felt it would be to his advantage financially to buy it, to buy this property. So now Boaz, he throws in a, a very complicating detail. And he says, by redeeming Naomi's land, the kinsman would have prospects for, uh, well, the, this other guy, he would look at this, he would have prospects for enlarging his own permanent own land holding because since Naomi had no heir, she had no sons, no, no grandsons, um, then when she died, the, the, the land would resort to his family, to, to the kinsman family, and, and be passed on to his heirs. So therefore, the money that he would put forth to redeem the land, to buy it from her, would be an investment in future returns for him. Because the, if it's just Naomi and him involved, there's no heirs. So when he redeems the land, it's really more about future uh, gains that he's going to get. Uh, if, there's, if this were just the case of a of land redemption, it would have been a very, very attractive business proposal. But once Boaz interprets the kinsman responsibilities as including marrying Ruth, well, now the, the economic picture of the whole thing changes completely. Because upon, upon hearing Boaz's inclusion of Ruth in the transaction, the kinsman redeemer he just sort of swallows hard in the moment and, and starts to backpedal as fast as he can. He's like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Here's a man who has a covenant responsibility to care for his wider family circle. He has a covenant responsibility to redeem family property in order to maintain it uh, within the family circle. But there's also a guy, he's a shrewd businessman. And in the, in the ordinary course of events, uh, redeemed land would default to the original owner in the year of Jubilee. Every seventh year, they had a year of Jubilee, and any, any uh, person that was held you know, in indentured servitude, so to speak, or anybody that, uh, any land that was redeemed would all, they'd be set free, the land would go back to the original owner, that was, that's just the way it was. And so in this instance, since Naomi had no sons, no grandsons, as I said earlier, it, it might be thought that that would not happen. Because if she had no one to, he, if he had no one to which he could return the land, then he's going to just keep the land. And in that case, the price he paid for redemption would really ultimately, in effect, become a final purchase price, rather than merely sort of just paying to keep the land in the family for a few years and then uh, have it, have it go back to the other family. His thought is, man, this is going to become mine. It's going to be my family's in, in, in perpetuity. And so it sounded like a really good deal. And he, he's, I mean, listen, he knew that buying the land, buying the property might restrict him, might perhaps burden him financially for a while, 
But this was a shrewd, long-term investment on his part. And the short-term hardships and sacrifices would be well worth the potential long-term gain. But, But now comes this new factor. A young widow who is still capable of having children. Now we get into this leveret uh, uh, marriage idea uh, where the, if, a, if a son died with no heirs, then the, the, his brother would, would marry uh, the, that woman to try to have a child, and then the first child would actually be considered legally the child of the dead, of the dead husband, and therefore the legal, everything that he had legally would pass on to him. And so now it's a whole different thing because now... While there are no heirs now, there could be an heir. And, there could, and when that heir comes, that changes the whole value of the whole system, uh, or excuse me, of the whole investment. You know? And so when he first said, I'll redeem it, he wasn't bargaining on getting Naomi and Ruth in this whole story. Because uh, you know, he, he's, he's not just talking about redeeming the land then, but he's also he's going to have to take care of Ruth and Naomi, support them financially. And then if Ruth if uh, bears a son to him, that first son is going to actually belong to her oldest, to her, the, to Ruth's uh, uh, dead husband, legally speaking, and all the property would go to him, and it would not be in his family. So it's not just now the price of the of the land. It's this is a this is a lot of money. This is a massive investment. So in meeting covenantal obligations and responsibilities, the question is, is this man prepared to do so without reservation and potentially at great personal expense? And the answer is no. In the presence of the witnesses, he forfeited his right of redemption to Boaz, who was the next nearest kinsman. Let's read on verse 7. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, One party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Now, notice that's in parentheses. That tells us that at the writing of the book of Ruth, that this was not a custom that they were using anymore. So he had to try to explain what happened next. He's just uh, telling the the readers, hey, this is what this means. Verse 8, so the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. This is the part that that they're explaining to, to them, and we'll get into this in a moment. Then Boaz announced to the elders and, and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Malan, those are the two sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malan's widow, as my, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records." Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those in the gate said, "We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, uh, into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah." Now, he starts off, in that phrase, now in earlier times, that tells us, as I said, that the author's giving us a parenthetical insertion to describe a custom that was no longer practiced at the time the book was written. And the, the, the origin of the custom of taking off the sandal and handing it to him is a very unusual thing. I mean, we'd think it'd be a little odd for us today if you went to 
a neighbor and said, hey, I'd like to buy this, this field. And he said, okay, I'll sell it to you. And, um, and then he took off his, his uh, sneaker and handed it to you and said, oh, okay, the deal's done. You'd be like, what is going on here? So it's a little weird to us. But uh, the origin of the custom has been traced to an ancient practice of taking possession of property by walking on the soil that was being claimed. And removing the sandal and handing it to another became a symbol of the transfer of the land. And so by removing and passing his sandal to Boaz, what the kinsman was doing was he is legal, legally re- relinquishing his right to tread on the designated piece of land. That's the whole idea behind it. He's saying, I'm not free to walk on it. It's yours. Here's my sandal. That's kind of the, you know, the idea behind it. In, in, in the presence of these gathered witnesses, the kinsman renounced his right to the land and invited Boaz to buy it. And, and, and you listen, this is, it's important that this take place in the city gate because this is a time where very few written records were kept and, and verification of, of, by a number of witnesses made transactions legally secure. You know, now, you know, if you had something and, you, and somebody came back later and said, no, I didn't really sell that to you, you, you'd have a deed, you'd have a contract, you'd have something written down to say, no, here's the proof, you signed it right there, I signed it right here, and it's really mine. But if there was ever a dispute back in those days without the written records, uh, Boaz could then just call on the witnesses and say, hey, these ten, 10 men saw what happened, and they'd stand there and say, yes, it's true, we are witnesses. But then not only that, he could also produce the sandal to show that the deal had indeed been legitimate. He said, here's your sandal. So Boaz addressed the elders and the people who had assembled and reminded them that they were witnesses to what had transpired. transpired. He had acquired all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to his sons that had been passed down to them from Naomi. And in addition, he acquired the right to take Ruth as his wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So in other words, this property uh, is not going to be in the records of the town. Uh, uh, If he has a son, it's not going to be listed under the name of Boaz. It's going to be under the name of his son, and it's going to be through the line of Malon, the son of Naomi. Um, So he, he ended his remark, he actually began and ended his remark, both by saying, today you are witnesses, and the people replied with what must have been an established legal response, because they all said, we are witnesses. And they then pronounced a blessing of fertility on Ruth, that they would be like Rachel and Leah. That's really interesting, because they had 12 sons between them, and the entire nation of Israel came from them. So there's, and then they, the people pronounced a dual blessing on Boaz that, that he would have standing, which meant that he would achieve wealth and that he'd become famous in Bethlehem. And, and it was understood. Boaz knew that, that the first son would be reckoned as Malan's son. And, and the people were expressing, in, by saying this, they were expressing a hope that Boaz, in his kindness, in, his, uh, in redeeming the situation, because he was not legal, legally required to, being as he was not a brother, he was just a, a, a more distant relative, and, and ex- showing this kindness, they're expressing their hope that they would have many other children who would be legally his. Let's look at verse 13. So Bo- Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the, the events of here in chapter, verse 13 and following, at least nine months uh, have passed. And, and so the, the events of at least nine months are described in one sentence of 15 Hebrew words. And we're, we're given no details concerning the marriage ceremony or, you know, was it a big deal? Was it a, that we don't know anything about the marriage ceremony that united Boaz and Ruth. And we're not told even specifically how much time elapsed between their marriage and the birth of his first son. Obviously, we know it was at least nine months, but it could have been longer than that. We just don't know. But the, the writer then attributes the, the Lord for, estab- for enabling Ruth to conceive after years of infertility. And there's, the, there's the, the inference here that throughout her life she had had trouble conceiving children and now God just opened her womb and she was able to have this son. And the women of the community who earlier, they had witnessed Naomi's bitter lament. Uh, uh, she came back home and they said, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi call me Mara, which means bitter. They had witnessed her coming back with this horrible, bitter lament, this terrible circumstance. And now they gather around her to share in her happiness. They saw what a huge change. They, they praised the Lord for, and they gave him credit for providing a redeemer for Naomi and and, and, and it was this child who took away Naomi's reproach of childlessness and would take care of her, of her in her old age. And the, the women blessed the child and expressed the hope that he would become famous throughout Israel. And, and then and it's very interesting. I love the, the description because they had some very rem- remarkable words of praise for Ruth because they described, they proclaimed that Ruth was better to Naomi than seven sons might have been. Now that is a huge statement because in their culture that that's just striking because of what we understand the importance that they placed on sons in the old testament in their culture it was it was the sons who received the inheritance it was the sons who took care of their parents as as they got older and 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 somebody who had many many sons would be assured of support in their old age and continuation of their family line and they said ruth is worth like seven sons so they obviously think very, very highly of her. Naomi took the newborn child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. And some scholars say that that was an act of formal adoption, but there's no biblical evidence to say that that's the case. It's more likely just describing a grandmother delighting in her first grandchild. And the child was named Obed, and he was, became the father of King David. And the story of Ruth shows how a Moabite woman obtained an exalted place in Hebrew history. Now, I want, I want to read the last few verses, and then we're going to have some thoughts that I want to share with you on that, and then we'll close. But, but this, is, this is, I'm going to read verses 18 through 22, and this is what it closes it out. This is a very, very unusual way to end a story. Very unusual. There's no, 
And they lived happily ever after. There's no, and they had many sons and daughters, and, and there's no, they, they established great wealth, and they were remembered for this day. This is what it says. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nachshon, Nachshon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. That's it. What a weird ending. But it, it shows us a couple of things. God gave a woman who had nothing a family tree. That's one thing. But in this, we find the real meaning of the writing of Ruth. There's a couple of things that we see. First of all, it tells us that this was written at least after the reign of King David. Because obviously, he had to have been born for them to know his name. And so it could have been written as a means to, to show his lineage, to show his, his claim to the throne. But, but, but more than I think there's even more than that here. Because at, at the beginning of the story... We saw Naomi holding tightly, as it were, to her husband and, and, and grasping the hands of her two boys as together they left Bethlehem and they went to Moab. Then later she returned with nothing in her hands. No husband, no children, only the liability of a widowed Moabite daughter-in-law. But as the story proceeded, we... we, we we kept sensing the possibility that God was perhaps going to fill her uh, life and, and bring some, some, something out of this because all along you just get these little clues, you know, like you remember we were, we were talking about one chapter where uh, Boaz was introduced at the very beginning of the chapter when he doesn't even enter the story until later and it was the writer saying, hey, Boaz is an important person, pay attention when you hear this name, this is significant. And so you get these little clues all the way along through the story and, 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 the, and so there's these signs that maybe God was going to fill this, the emptiness of this woman, and God does so literally. First, he filled Naomi with the abundance of food. There was famine in the land, and the famine in which she had, uh, in which she had turned away from God and had gone to Moab became the feast that she enjoyed when she returned to him. But in the, in the last glimpse of Naomi, she's sitting with Boaz and Ruth's son named Obed in her arms, and and he is a handful for this once empty-handed grandmother. But you know, even though the book is titled Ruth and there's huge parts of the story concerning Naomi and Boaz, in a sense, the book is not ultimately about Naomi or Ruth or Boaz or, or even Obed or even, even ultimately even David, really. Uh, one of the great lessons of Ruth is that we must never limit the purposes of God as though he were doing only one thing at a time in only one person at one place at a time, here and now in me. That's, that's how, we tend to, how we tend to approach life. It's like, God, what are you doing in my life? And we have this, this very me-centered uh, focus that we do in Sometimes we can be deeply puzzled by the circumstances of our in our lives, and we're like, "What? What is God doing? God, what are you? What are you doing in my life? Are you? I don't. Under, I don't understand this. Why am I going through this pain? You know." And we can't, even though we see the joy at the end of the story with, for Naomi, we can't skip over the fact that she walked through some bitter, bitter times of 
horrible sorrow losing her husband and both sons. Too frequently, we, we focus attention on ourselves as though the, the answer lay within our individual lives, as, as if we uh, were the central key to interpret, interpreting the plan of God to the entire universe. Listen, God is intimately aware of us, and he is deeply concerned for our welfare, but his providential purposes, while they include me, do not center on me, as though he is doing in me what he's doing in me could be isolated from everything else he's doing. See, we think about the purpose and the plan of God and all these things, and, and we tend to think about, what's God's plan for me? What's God's plan for me? But we forget that our part is a very small part of a much bigger plan that he is accomplishing, a much bigger purpose that he is working in this creation. See, the reality is God's purposes, is they, they crisscross and they zigzag and they cross-fertilize one believer's life with that of an unbeliever. And so you're going through something as a believer and it takes you someplace and it brings you in contact with an unbeliever and God begins to do something there or, or one believer's experience uh, leads them to, to touching the life of another believer. And, and, and the, the explanation for much that takes place in our lives, the truth of it is it lies well beyond our own lives and may be hidden from us all through our entire lives. For, for God does not mean to touch only our lives by what he does in us. He has the lives of others in view, even those yet unborn. There's a purpose, and sometimes the greater purpose we will never see. We'll never understand. Um, I want to tell, I don't know if I can remember all the details, but I thought about it right before service, and I'm going to try to remember. I don't know if anybody here, you probably haven't, he's not that particularly well known, but there's a missionary, an Assembly of God missionary from uh, many, many years ago. His name is Victor Plymeyer. And he went to China as a missionary before, long before communist China. And, um, and he went there with his wife, they had a little boy. I think the child was born there in China. But in one particular village in which they were living, the uh, smallpox broke out. Now, they didn't know what it was at first um, when the first person died. But then his son contracted smallpox. And, uh, and then as he was dying from it, his wife con contracted smallpox and began to die from it. And in fact, he carried... His, his son died from smallpox, and it was in the middle of winter. All he could do was try to scratch out a shallow grave in his garden outside of his hut, and, and he, as I remember correctly, carried his wife outside just so they could have a little funeral. Then she passed away. Well, eventually he had to find a permanent burial place, but because he was a foreigner, the village, nobody in the village, that he was not allowed to purchase any land inside the village uh, where, he could, where he could bury his wife and his son. Now you, you can imagine the deep sorrow he's dealing with and the confusion. Can you imagine the confusion? God, I've given my whole life to you. I, I've left everything behind. I'm living here, you know, uh, in, uh, living by faith in this foreign country, trying to tell people about you. And now my wife and my son are both, they're, they're, they're gone, they're dead. You can imagine all the questions that are there. Well, eventually, 
there was someone who was sympathetic to him, and they, they gave him some property on, the, on a mountainside, on the, I think it was a northwest west side outside the city limits, so he could bury them there. And he buried them there. And, and, and uh, there's a much, much, there's a great uh, book called uh, uh, High Adventure in Tibet. I actually have a copy if you'd like to read it about his life. But, but what is not told in the novel that came about later, he had a nephew. Um, who was living in the States and in Springfield, Missouri, where the headquarters are. Well, in that process, after all of that happened, it, that was when the communist revolution came into China and the, and the communist government confiscated all the property of churches. They, they couldn't own any property. So they took this little church that they had, uh, took it away from them, and uh, they were, he is, had a, quite a harrowing escape through the Tibetan mountains and everything. It's quite a story. Uh, but um, years later, when the Chinese government began to ease up and began to uh, return property that had been confiscated from these churches and allowed them to own property, own a church building, at least that part, uh, as they went to try to regain the church there in that per- particular village, as they tried to regain the property, they, the Chinese government, the communist government, would not give it back to them because they said there is no legal evidence that this property was ever used for a church, so we're not going to give it back to you. So the person who was involved in it got a hold of Victor Plymeyer's uh, nephew, I think his name was David Plymeyer, and, and said, you know, because you had the archives in the, in the, there in the Assemblies of God, and they said, is there anything, maybe it's in his, in his personal belongings, is there anything that would, could prove that this church existed? Well, they began digging, and they found a deed to a piece of property on which Victor Flymeyer had buried his wife and his son. And for some reason, known unknown to anyone except for Victor Flymeyer, he deeded that property instead of him to himself, he deeded it to the church. And now, decades later, they had the legal evidence to show and they were able to get the church building back. Now, I'm not saying God did all that so that they could have a church building. I'm just saying that, the, that there are many times and circumstances in our lives that we don't understand. Victor Plymeyer never saw that there was anything greater that came out of that whole situation. He never saw that. He was, he was dead and gone long before any of that happened. But see, there was an overarching purpose that God was doing something that went beyond him. And that's the way it is with, with Ruth and Naomi and, and Boaz, that there was a much greater purpose that went beyond them, that, that even though they saw the fulfillment and they saw some great and wonderful and, and joyful times at the end of the story there, the, the story actually went way beyond that. Be, because, it, you know, it, it wasn't just that, I mean, they had no clue that the greatest king in the history of Israel was going to be, you know, their great-grandchild. They had no clue, even more so, that they were preserving the line of Judah and that a Savior would come, a Savior for the entire world would come from their, from their, uh, their offspring. 
story and the purpose was much greater than they could ever grasp in their lifetime. And the, the fact that, you know, that God is, wants to touch not only our lives, but, but the lives of others, even those that are yet to come, you know, that, that's why life can seem so untidy for the people of God. Because even, even when I come to my last day, he's not yet, yet finished his business. He, 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 there may be many loose ends still yet that I don't see, and I may not see. The, the tapestry is only partially complete, but, but what he's doing in me may benefit a generation down the road or two generations down the road. And, and if I have to go through something difficult and painful in order to set my children up, or my grandchildren up to, be, to walk in the blessings of God, then so be it. I'll take it even if I don't understand it. He has much, much weaving still yet to do and, 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 in which he will bring those loose ends together. Perhaps it's going to be in somebody else's life in the future, even long after we're gone. God means to, be, means to bring blessings and answers to prayer beyond anything we could ever ask or imagine, just as he did in the story of Ruth. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it makes it clear that it's a mark of genuine faith to look beyond our own day to the time when God will fulfill his promises. And we, we discover through the book of Ruth that God was at work through all of these circumstances to ensure that the royal line of David would survive and that King David would be born. But as I said, even more than that, we see the hand of God at work to sovereignly preserve the line of Judah that would bring the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. William Cowper, which I actually earlier in this study mentioned one of his, uh, the, 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 one of the verses to one of his great poems, and he was surely right when he wrote this. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. His treasures, he, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So what are the lessons that we learn from Ruth? And we'll close with this. I've got four of them at least. Then you can find many more, I'm sure. The first thing we see, the beauty of, of commitment and friendship, and it underscores the value of family commitment. I think that's a uh, something you can see there. Another thing, another lesson you can see is that God can use anyone to accomplish his purposes on earth. Ruth was the least likely candidate to be used by God. A Moabite woman coming from a nation that worships false gods and worship idols. And in fact, if you remember, the Moabites even sacrificed children uh, to their gods. And, and, and so she's very unlikely, a very unlikely candidate to be used to fulfill God's purposes. And, and here you have two people brought together by a highly unlikely series of circumstances, and they become the ancestors of the great king of Israel as well as the ancestors of the Savior of all mankind. Third thing, this is huge because this is a picture we see in Boaz. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, driven by love, went out of his way to redeem us, just like Boaz went out of his way to redeem Ruth, even though we were not worthy to be redeemed. And then the last one, which ties into the last part of the lesson tonight, is that God is at work in all the little details of life, and his work may not be fully understand, understood in this life. 
That's where faith comes in, where we say, God, I still trust you. I believe you're going to work out your purpose. Even if I don't see it in my life, I believe that you've got a greater purpose and that you're going to fulfill something. You're going to do something. And maybe it's in my children. Maybe it's in their children. Maybe it's even further down the line. But you are working a purpose in in my life, through my life. And it's not about me. It's not centered on me. But it's it's going to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, I thank you for this beautiful book. And I thank you, Lord, that you are our redeemer, that uh, you paid the price to redeem us. And it was at great cost to you. And, um, and, and we are the, the, the beneficiaries of that. And I thank you, Lord, that we see in the book of Ruth the sovereign hand of God at work in their lives, and which means that if we look closely, we can see the sovereign hand of God moving in our lives. And though we may not always fully see it, we may not fully understand it, we, we know you're doing something. You're fulfilling your purposes. And, uh, and even though you, you bless us in the time being, it's really not about that. It's about the purposes of God in redeeming this world. Lord, I pray you'd help us to rejoice in that and to uh, make that redemption known to everyone we can. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.